Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Now she's talking very quietly because she knows Inedible. Inedible. <laughs> it's inedible. All right, so I guess that too. Oh, right. We're all just little punchies. <laughs> Ready when you are, Sherry? Let's do this thing. It's starting. It's okay. All right, listeners, you know how I get Matt to shut up for a little while? I have to invite 12 other women to join me on the podcast. Woohoo! We're glad to have you guys here. What do you say? You glad to be here? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow, some enthusiasm. I love it. <laughs> How special is this to have 14 people sitting around the same microphone? Well, it's pretty darn special. So I'm hoping I don't have to talk a lot and we don't have to hear you talk a lot. I know. We're going to hear them talk a lot. I'm going to do this introduction and go take a nap pretty much. <laughs> That's my plan. We, so you're probably wondering why, listeners, why we have 14 people around the same microphone and I want to turn it over to my good friend Nikki because you have a lot to do with the fact that we're all sitting here. We've talked about the idea of getting this group together, but no one was quite as persistent as you. <laughs> so why don't you tell our listeners what, what we're all doing in the same room? So we are on our very first Echoes retreat. And so we, 14 out of many, many others who couldn't make it, are here. And we've spent the weekend... Um, in nature, a lot of nature. Some are happy, some are not. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're, I mean, we all haven't shut up since we got here. We're all very much, we all relate to one another, and it's been a blast. And I'm glad they finally put it together. I think the biggest challenge, and I know that you'll agree with me, Nikki, with that introduction, is how are we going to turn from just kind of having fun and giggles and and, I mean, an hour ago we were dipping pizza crust into honey, mm-hmm. yes. which sounds like a bizarre thing if you're not from Colorado. delicious. Uh, but an hour ago we were doing that, and now we're going to dive into some pretty heavy subjects, which we always talk about on the Intoxicated Podcast, but hopefully we'll have some fun doing it. So don't anyone hesitate to laugh if laughter comes. <laughs> so the, the topic for today that we want to cover since we've got so many really lived experience experts and just truly dear people to Sherry and I um, who we, we enjoy and uh, we respect their opinions more than I can express, um, we want to ask them to share their lived experience with everyone out there who's not quite as far along as these fine folks and, and might be struggling a little bit and trying to figure out what you do with this thing. So... Uh, no specific questions. We're just going to talk some themes today. The, the main overriding theme is what have you learned that you didn't know or expect? And to start out with, let's talk about that. What did you learn that you didn't know or expect about alcoholism? And I'm not going to call on people for an hour, but I do want to start with you, Kathy, because you've done some pretty heavy-duty research as to statistics and what is known out there in the big bad world about the disease of alcoholism. So what's, what has this process meant to you? I think the thing that surprised me the most, which is 
a theme, obviously, you share often on your podcast is that getting sober changes nothing. Mm-hmm. It just creates the conditions from which uh, not only the, the person in sobriety, but the family can grow. And I was not prepared for how difficult that journey was. I really thought you get the booze out of the way and, and things will start getting better and healing pretty quickly. And I was surprised at how much that was not the case. Um, to the point where I, I reached out to you, Matt, several times to say, oh my God, it's eight months. He's still, his anxiety is still through the roof. The depression's terrible. He's cranky. Like, when is this going to turn around? And to hear that it's a good, solid year minimum before that starts to lift was particularly hard because for most of us, the day of sobriety was not how long we've been waiting. Many of us have been waiting years. I have been waiting a decade for um, my significant other to get well. So to be told that I've got to wait some more and wait some more and wait some more, I was not particularly um, patient (laughs) is probably the kindest way I would describe my own behavior through that process. I know as the alcoholic, I wanted instant gratification. I don't know if y'all know this about alcoholics, but we uh, are constantly in search of instant gratification. And even in sobriety, I thought the same thing. Wow, I quit. So everything's fine now. So that shock that you felt when you kind of came to the realization that it was going to be a year is something that I share. And I think people on both sides of the fence. Anybody else shocked by that? I was shocked by that, but I was also shocked at the fact that I actually had to do work to heal. (laughs) Um, I was not expecting that. I was expecting the sober part, but I went into victim mode. I'm like, well, you did this. Like, you fix it. And not realizing my role um, in needing to go through the journey of healing from um, all the trauma and the chaos and all of that goes with that, you know, I, I just, that was the last thing on my mind. Um, but then there became a point where I realized he was going forward and I was standing still and I'm going, well, what the hell, you know, why is this, why is this happening? Why am I like in this angry state still and not able to be happy for him being sober? Um, so that's when I started to do my healing. Would you describe that as feeling stuck? Yes. Who else has felt stuck through this process? Oh gosh. Yeah. 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 Repeatedly. Well, I think following that, that concept of, of not knowing that sobriety doesn't fix anything. I think for me, a shock part was a little before, um, the first day of, of potentially extended sobriety, which was when first discovering this was a problem, it came out of the bag, he admitted it was a challenge, we started talking about it, I thought, okay, well now we're just going to go fix it. I didn't know, I mean that was four years ago for us, I didn't know that that was not going to be the the time that sobriety happened. And I was repeatedly shocked over and over again by these attempts at sobriety and then the relapses and the attempts and the relapses and, and I had no preparation for that roller coaster. I think of myself naively walking in with him to the first clinic you know those years ago thinking okay we're we're turning the corner now and we hadn't even gotten on the street let alone approached the corner so i think that's another piece of the shock is i just didn't know 
how how much it was going to be a roller coaster. Yeah, I think we're all saying sobriety, but we mean recovery because there is a dif- a difference between sobriety and recovery. You can be uh, sober. You can be walking around not drinking, but if that's all you're doing is not drinking, then that is certainly not going to fix anything. And I know a lot of our spouses are doing that. Uh, And unfortunately, that doesn't help anything. And I, I know that I can, my husband has said to me, I'm not drinking anymore. What else do you want from me? Well, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one that's heard that, and um, and that is the stuck part, you know. So, yeah, we're we're saying sobriety, but we mean recovery, and recovery for our husbands and recovery for ourselves are, you know, something that it it's not just like a thing that you do, and then you're done and you move on. It's something that it's a process and it's something that it's going to be a thing we're going to be doing for the rest of our lives and i think that's something that like you you know like you said deb like i i did the same thing oh we're going into this thing it's going to be a month long or a year long and then we're going to like move on no we're going to be we're going to be doing it forever. We're going to be in this community forever. So that's why something like this, this group, this retreat, this thing is so important because the connection with people that 100% get it and understand and won't judge you, that connection with those people, with your people, that is the thing. Like that is the thing that when you have that, that's, I, to me, the most important part of recovery because you, you can't just do it when you're isolated because you'll never make it. And that kind of ties into the thought that I had, which was uh, the, the surprising thing for me about alcoholism in general was how much of his behavior was actually caused by it's caused by his disease, and I mean, I recognized early on in our relationship that he, you know, was a heavy drinker. Um, but as things went on, I was like, well, this, his reactions to things are not normal, and this, I'm so confused as to what's going on. And eventually, I found the Intoxicated podcast, and I joined Echoes. And it wasn't until all of you started to share everything that you've experienced where I learned, quote unquote, his behavior is textbook. I mean, all of our specific situations are different, but you guys, you've all shared, just on this weekend alone, some things that my husband have said, uh, I mean, verbatim, that you've heard from your partners. And you're sitting there shaking your head going, I can't believe how alike, how different all of our situations can be, but how alike all of our stories are. That's, that's a really important point, Angela. How many of you guys, by a, a verbal show of hands, because this is radio and not television, <laughs> Uh, so just say I or I don't know, whatever you want to say. But how many of you had that lost and stuck feeling where you thought that the thing that you were going through was unique and you were going through it alone? And then whether it's listening to the podcast or meeting a friend or whatever it is, 
you had kind of an aha moment of, oh my God, other people go through this? And then, yeah. Yeah. And so is that a feeling of relief or terror or (laughs) all of it, all of it, sadness included, like it's sad that I'm looking at all of you fantastic women sitting across from me and all the fantastic people that are in our group. And I think how sad it is that it has to affect all of these fabulous people, whether it's the sober or the alcoholic partner. And how deep it goes and how deep it runs into the families and relationships. So I hated knowing that there were other people like me. But I told you before, it didn't make me feel better. I just knew and I just, I just wanted to kind of wish that nobody else had to have this happen to them. Yeah. So, but it has been a really nice community. To mm. And it's you even are. more sad knowing how many more are out there exactly. who are in silence, who are hurting and don't know that these things exist. Or, you know, just are afraid to speak up. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think part of that gets back to something you've talked about on the podcast before, which is alcoholism is the family secret. Mm-hmm. And so for the longest time, you don't talk about it. And so you aren't hearing other people's stories because you're not sharing it with anyone. So when you finally do start to share it with folks and you start to hear the same stories and, and as Angela said, the same words you start to realize, oh, this is the alcohol. Yeah. But it's terrifying because when you figure, when you find out, oh my gosh, there's so much more going on here. I mean, I had no idea. Like, all these things that can happen um, from alcohol, I just was clueless to that entire world. Mm-hmm. So when I started to find it out, it was just the more I dug into it and listened to what you guys were saying and, and everybody's stories, while helpful super scary um yeah and it just leads you further and further down the road and I wish that I had known so much of that so much earlier on because there's a you know because you feel like I could have done things at point a point b point c Mm -hmm. had I known so not being educated and you're talking about like the physical ramifications the mental ramifications like it's it's not just I drink too much and I stumble around the house sometimes it's all the the stuff that comes with it. That yeah, I mean, it, it's a lead-up that you go through from phase to phase to phase with an alcoholic, and how, and you don't even know you're going through those phases probably till you're halfway through, you know, that the alphabet, and you're in it at that point. I want to touch on that, because the thing that I was surprised by is how all-consuming it was for me. Like, you understand that they're in their addiction, and it becomes their whole life, but it became my whole life that nobody talked about. So it was this thing that, that ate up 90% of my day in my head, but no one to talk to about it. Or, and we all mask it so well that I never, ever met another mom or heard of another mom with young kids and an alcoholic husband. Like, you'd go to Ellen and they'd be like, old ladies, mm-hmm. right? But definitely never, never knew how much it was going to take over my own being. Yeah. And as, as a natural nurturer, when you talk about it taking over, you're doing research, you're trying to figure out how from your side of the fence you can solve the problem. Um, I thought it was interesting, Jana, what you said about if I had known stuff earlier, there are things I could do. And I think you're 100% right. Things you, decisions you can make about yourself to protect yourself, how you want your life to play out, right? 
But the one thing that everyone I know, I, I can't even pretend to ask this in the form of a question because I know <laughs> you all too well. I know you've all learned this. There's nothing you can do to make the drinker stop drinking. Um, but what I am curious is what was that moment like when you figured that out? Or was it a process? Did it take weeks and months? What was that kind of aha like when you realized no matter how good a nurturer I am, no matter how much effort I exert, no matter how many articles I read or podcasts I listen to, I can't make this person stop drinking. What did that feel like? I had to make a choice. I didn't have bandwidth. I either had to concentrate on me and the kids or focus on him. I couldn't do both. Mm. Because if I would have done both, I would have killed myself. Mm. Literally, I would have been too tired to be able to take on all of it. So I had to make a choice. And that choice was me and the kids. That was something that I knew that I would be able to manage. But I knew I couldn't manage him. I couldn't, I couldn't even try. So yeah. I didn't. And that's when I knew. And at that point, that's when you grieve. Yep. For the relationship. Yep. For what could have been. What could have been, yep. what you thought it was. And not to say we're all a room full of people who have walked away, because that isn't what we're here for. Um, and that's why we wear the mask, because of the judgment and the labels. So why tell anybody? They're just going to say, oh, just leave. You're codependent. You know, that's not what we are. And even if we are, it's because we've been trying to make it, hold it together, you know, against a disease you didn't, didn't understand. Well, like our recent topic, you know, we were all trying to control the uncontrollable. And I think those labels, for me personally, that was one of the places where I got really confused and stuck for a while. Then I got angry and frustrated, you know, and, and it, it's like the the... My own assumption, when I first realized what situation I was in, the very first thing I did was start assuming that I, I was all of those labels that I had heard through movies and mainstream everything, you know? It was like, if you are a partner of an alcoholic, then it means you are doing a thousand things wrong. And it's, it's taken years for me to, to, to peel apart the truth for what that means to me, but also to look at non-alcoholic relationships and realize that some of the behaviors that can get labeled disgustingly badly as like codependent and enabling and all the stuff some of these are just normal relationship behaviors and that couples regardless of alcohol are going to have to come together and figure out how to communicate and how to how to share feedback with each other and how to ask for needs but the the stigma around the the labels for partners of alcoholics was was crippling um, I think that was the part that was so um hurtful as you know, we're trying to help our loved one, and for many of us, our loved one got to the point where they became very sick. And then to have the larger recovery community label us and judge us and treat us like it's the, well, it's because we're codependent and we're making the, the problem worse. It's like we're just trying to keep our loved one alive and hopefully help them get well. So that was one of the pieces that was just incredibly frustrating and, and hurtful while we were in kind of the worst situation and trying to make things better. It's almost demeaning. 
Almost. Demeaning. Demeaning. Yeah, it is very demeaning. Oh, like somehow we have taken right. a, a, like, an active role in it right. when we've just been a passenger. And there's mm-hmm. nothing for us. Right. Yeah. And there's nothing for us. I mean, really, out in the world, it's not something that's spoken about. We have no... Unless you have first-hand experience with this, there isn't really a community that you can find unless you really reach out and you end up finding your podcast or your book or there's there's nothing for us. It's all, what can we do to make it easier and better and non-conflicting for them? Right. Well, the, I'm sticking up my middle finger. That's what I feel about that. <laughs> like, I mean, at what point... <clears throat> I've done everything from the beginning to the end and you're literally sitting there killing yourself. At what point are we supposed to do something for ourselves? Right. I mean, how can we continue to move forward if we're out of gas? We can't. You have to stop and you have to be able to find your people. And that's what echoes, I mean, that certainly did it for me. And we want to help them, but we're told... That we really have no control. So you marry this person, and you know you're supposed to work together. You're supposed to help them, you know, for better or worse, sicker or poor. Oh, who has had that thrown You know, it's yeah. like yeah. so. It's like, and then and you feel like, oh, I can't even do that. That I have. You're, you're told in order to help them, you have to step back and yeah. just let them crash. Let the shit show commence. What's confusing about that is. The depression, well, if they have depression, you're supposed to be helping them and making the doctor's appointments and all of that. But if it's addiction, you're supposed to let them fail. Yeah. Well, what if they have both, which many of them do by the time. But then you're enabling. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, there is no easy answer because it's all intertwined. Right. And that's what we're discovering. Everything is just intertwined. There's a reason that there's the addiction. But you got to get beyond the addiction, then dig deeper. And as Leah was mentioning, that there's a difference between sobriety and recovery. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of you and a lot of people in our Echoes group are moving forward to that recovery. Well, I feel bad that the partner is just in sobriety, dry drunk mode. Mm-hmm. Or not. Which is also yeah. something I did not know. That was one thing I, I like, that was yeah. my, you know, I knew that sobriety wasn't going to fix everything when Matt said that, but the dry drunk and the difference, because the difference that in this attempt, you know, this final attempt, you had done a little bit of reading and kind of opened up to more education. And so <clears throat> the time you had before, you know, your sobriety had a little bit longer than you relapsed and went a while and then it just made it a world of difference, just kind of moving forward and educating and discovering. I'd say it's like herding cats, but it's not. Mm. It's trying to lasso a tornado. And you, mm. there's so much chaos, and you want to try and control it. You want to lasso it. You want to contain it. And you can't, because then you're called controlling. You Don't mind me. Don't, don't you know, mm-hmm. mother me. Don't take over for me. You're, you're controlling everything that I need to, you know, you need to not do kind of thing and so it's you know not knowing where to go or what to do or like I felt lost and alone and on an island with a tornado that couldn't be contained as you work your way through this process 
and you start to learn more, and then you get to the place where these labels are being thrown at you, codependent, which is now something that my husband likes to throw in my face. Like, oh, you're codependent, you need help. Um, you, you start to read more about that and focus, you know, you try to focus on whatever you can to, to help the, the chaotic situation that you're in. And then, but the more education I got, the more I came to my own conclusions. Like, well, the, the term codependence, I feel, if you break that down, turns into actually all of the reasons that my husband fell in love with me in the first place and all of the reasons that my friends love me as a person. Um, we're just n nurturing, kind, caring people and you're in love with somebody who's suffering. So it's just in your nature to, to care for them and it's thrown at you as if it's a bad thing uh, in a lot of ways. You know, the finger gets point pointed at you. So... You're trying to deal with one thing, and then you start to feel like it's your fault, and there's just so many emotions to to sort through. Uh, you're just trying to stay afloat most of the time. And I want, I just wanted to um, go back to that idea that sobriety doesn't fix anything. You know, even beyond that, sometimes it makes things worse um, because they're no longer um, numbing whatever their chaos is. So that chaos that you're trying to lasso can become even more out of control because it becomes something that you're not prepared for because while they were drinking, you knew what to expect and suddenly you don't have this, this thing, this alcohol to blame, but there's still this chaos because they're sober, they're not working on themselves, they're not in recovery, like Leah said, and um, it just becomes a this thing that you really just don't know what to do with. Because I feel like a lot of things are underlining before, you know, the alcohol. And so mm -hmm. they have to heal whatever that underlining thing is. And if they don't, then they're still in the same mindset. They're just not drinking. Mm -hmm. So so that's where our recovery has to start, too. Yep. Right. That's where the word detached that doesn't make sense to so many of us. Right. And I hate to use the phrase, stay in your own lane. But that's what we start to do is to say, okay, well, you are sober, you're capable of making this decision, and I'm going to stand over here and be me, so you can stand over here and be you. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we grow together, but if not, you know, you made a choice for my future that I didn't agree to, so now it's time for me to choose my future that I want. And hopefully you educate yourself and join. Mm -hmm. And if not, then we're healing, and we're ready to go and do our life however that looks. Can I add on the let go part? Um, I let go in waves because I'm controlling. Um, <laughs> so I let go of like, <laughs> this part over here I'll let go of, but I'm going to manage the chaos in these two areas still because I'm not willing to let that enter these two parts of my life. And I'll let go of this little part, but if you have a person who's, who also, in most alcoholics, as it progresses, suffer with deep depression, it got to the point where my control felt like I was keeping him alive. Yeah. Keeping him alive. Yeah. yeah. So so you're telling me to let go, and I'm literally feeling holding like I'm holding it together every day. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that's a really important place where there isn't, I didn't find a lot of language either about how how to be in these places of detachment like Pam was talking about and 
and trying to focus on our own healing and also holding the love and compassion for a person suffering. And I think that that's one of the places where the, the support on the outside, you know, I know people in my life who love and care about me. I started getting, you know, a lot of advice about how I should just stop caring and you just stop this. And it's like, well, you know, if only life was black and white, wouldn't it be easier for all of us in all ways? But it's not, you know, and there's a lot of, of gray. There's a lot of, it depends. There's a lot of one day is one way. The next day is the next day. And, and at the core of all of this are living beings that are suffering, you know, and yeah, there's love and compassion and care. And I don't know, there's nothing anyone's going to tell me to say that that isn't what the world needs more of regardless of the situation. But it seems impossible sometimes in these in situation with an alcoholic partner to sort of say, how do I feel those things? And also do all the other things right and also take care of myself, but yet also feel these things that are just normal things to feel. Yeah. So I, I feel like it's really hard. Like we all, you know, we all want to and are trying so hard to be on our own journey of recovery and do what we need to do for ourselves and we we're coming here and we're we're being strong and we're staying in our own lane and we're we're doing all of this and there's been so many horrible things that have been said to us and done to us and all of these things have happened to all of us but like you said Rachel there is still love and I know for me, I can still, no matter what has happened and, you know, what I know could happen and I can still be in the presence of my husband and I still get butterflies in my stomach and I mean like, I still feel the same way about him as I felt when I was 22 and I still have like, you know, when he calls or texts me, I still feel like he called me, he texted me. I still feel that way about my husband. Even though he pisses me off all the time, you know? And sometimes I don't like him, you know? But I love him. And I know that you guys, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to, to separate. Let's talk about the difference between like and love. That's a great lead-in. Lead yeah, I mean, you all fell in love with somebody, and there were characteristics and traits that made you find that person attractive. Let's take physical attraction out of the discussion altogether, because what I've learned from getting to know you folks and from the experience that's been shared by my own wife is that the physical attraction... That, that isn't really what we're talking about when we're up against this disease. But it's, there is nuance. There is subtlety. There is the fact that you all are naturally nurturers. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But at the same time, you don't want to spend all of your days and nights um, dealing with someone who is in this weakened state caused by this disease. The, the term I like to use is when I describe myself is, you know, slobbing, slobbering puddle. I was a slobbering puddle a lot of the time. So you take a nurturer who naturally wants to help people and be a caregiver, and then you take someone 
um, who's in this weakened state, and you'll give until you got you're below empty, right? But but the idea of staying with that person and being attracted to them, attracted to their soul, requires them to do the work on their end and to pick themselves up. Um, I think so often one of the things that we hear is it was alluded to, or we spoke directly about it earlier in sickness and in health, and. You know, you are supposed to be here for me just like I'm supposed to be here for you. Can't you, can't you see I'm hurting? What are you going to do for me? When it, it gets to the point, um, when you're doing your own recovery work, you're not just sober, you're not just a dry drunk, you're doing your own recovery work, where you as the spouse, you need to see them pick themselves up. And uh, it doesn't have to be every day, it doesn't have to be immediately, but they've got to make progress forward so that they are attractive to you, again, not physically, but emotionally attractive. Um, you guys are all nodding. Uh, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard as hell to watch them, you know, while you're trying, and you know it's hard because you're doing the work, to sit there and watch them not have be an equal participant and knowing, like, fight for us. Like, I'm over here fighting. Like, why are you not fighting? And it's... It's debilitating to watch that. And not only are they not fighting with you, they're fighting against right, you. Right, against you. What do you mean by that? It's, it's like they, they, he doesn't even want to get better. It's like he gets to a point where, this, this is fine, I'm fine. It's good Everything's enough. Good. I, everything's fine. <laughs> I'm so, what more do you want I, from I'm me, right? It's good. We're, yeah. we're fine now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think their self-esteem, all the work we all do, we're such smart partners and women, I think it threatens them at times because they have self-esteem and pretty. issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and very pretty. <laughs> but you know what? I've come to know how intelligent my husband really is. And when he gets in those depressive slumps, it makes me nuts because I'm like, you're smart. Speak up. Like, fight for yourself because you're worth yes. it. Yeah. Like, you're worth it. Yes. I think that's one of the things that's so heartbreaking about this is to watch our spouses give up on themselves. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's what they've done with addiction. Um, and the hard part at least for me, that I had shared with the group a while ago is, you know, we're always told detach with love, detach with love, Mm -hmm. detach with love. So I detached, but my spouse took 10 years to, and he only did it because his life was at stake. And that's a lot of detachment to the point where that detachment eventually turned into disconnection you know, we started having separate lives. We had very few similar friends, similar interests anymore. And then as, you know, as I've said, alcohol kills you slowly until it kills you fast. And so that last year or two, it, it starts, the health starts to decline very fast. And, um, and so that detachment, disconnection becomes disgust. And there are some things that I cannot unsee. And I, I don't really know how to come back from that. But if my spouse were actively working a recovery, at least I could begin to build respect for him. But he's not doing that. He's the kind who wants to put the problem in a box up on the wall and never open that box again. Move yep. forward. Let's forget about everything. That doesn't work for me. 
And they take you down with them That's if right. you let them. And yes. your kids. And your pets. And, you know, it's, um, when you realize for me, like, I felt myself just dive. I, I was just sinking to the bottom of the ocean, and I knew it. And who's my person? Right. Right. Is this person even capable, ever going to be capable of catching me when I felt like I'm going to need to fall? And, and knowing that that was not going to happen, that's not my person. And you need those people. And I think for most of us, I mean, I think we can all say with a lot of certainty that when we met our spouses, that was something that we thought we could count on. Definitely. We could count on them to catch us. Yeah. Um, for mine in particular, the fact that he bought a home for himself and his sister and his sister's kids and his mother, like he's taking care of his family. And here we are 22 years later. And he can't take care. He, I, I, he can't take care of anything. He can barely take a shower or brush his teeth. How, how was he ever going to take care of me or the kids? Or what happens if something happens to me? He can't take care of my children. There's no way. I mean, I think that's part of it is, I, I know, I'll speak for myself. I live in fear of if something happens to me. Because I don't know that he'll stay sober, number one. And... I mean, he has not been the person I can rely on for quite some time. That, that's where I was going with uh, this topic of whether you want to use the word attraction or connection. The person that you met, the person that you originally um, fell in love with, yeah, you, you guys are happy to be there to nurture and try to help that person back, but they have to show up at some point because it's it's got to be a two-way street. Sherry and I's relationship is stronger because we are independently strong. And when I was still drinking, I was just, you know, glomming on to her and and I was needy and I was jealous. And I think many people in my on my side of the street say I'm sober now, you know, what what more do you want from me thinking that that's the solution and not recognizing um that all, here's something that gets talked about a lot and that I, I think is misunderstood by the me's out there, by the alcoholics out there. You know, I am very good at compartmentalization. We all are. All this stuff that happened, I can box that up and say, that's in the rearview mirror. I'm sober now. Um, let's move on. But the need to, to process the resentment and, um, and heal and grow as individuals before we even heal and grow as a couple is, is really important. And I just think it gets missed. Do you, who wants to address that? Do you, do you have situations where you've got somebody that's sober? Um, but let's be specific about what we're talking about here. We need to make progress, not just stop putting a bottle to your lip lips, but, um, how are you going to do to get back to that person I, I fell in love with? I think what we're looking for in recovery is an emotional connection. And what an alcoholic becomes is an emotional parasite. <laughs> so <laughs> we're literally emotionally keeping you afloat. Mm -hmm. And you come to depend on us for that nurturing nutrient. And you don't know how to do it. So when you detach, it's like cutting off a parasite. Well, parasites die when they don't have a host. Mm -hmm. So we need you to figure out how to be independently, emotionally stable, driven 
people again without constantly using us for God reassurance, affirmation, comfort, um, and that that's hard to balance when we want the emotional connection because we're not getting what we want and you're not getting what you think you want. It's a hard thing to come back to. You're a nurturer, so you're good at that. Yeah, we're, dra- we're drawn to the wounded, yeah, right? Yes. You know how to do it, but you can't. it can't be all you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We can't be your mom, your best friend, Amen. your doctor, your nurse, your counselor. Like, we can't be all of those things and your wife. Like, we need you to get, like, some hobbies... Friends, friends, some like drive other like things to do. Well, especially because most of us has figured out how to do that on our own, right? So that's like our expectation now of you, on of right. them to do the same thing. Like, but, but that's living. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's like living. living. That's moving forward. Yeah, but when the alcohol was your friend, your doctor, your therapist, yeah, you know, lover. Right. You're looking for all that in your, one again with little effort. Your and who's in your house? It's also associated with anything that we think of as where I find my friends, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a guy who goes to work and wants to drink beer and watch the game on the weekend and all of these things, you know, that's either in the bar or um, happy hour after work, which I guess that's also a bar, or, uh, <laughs> or going or, or with your neighbors. Oh, but there's bar yeah. parts. Yeah. So that's a bar. Hey, let's move on. Let's move on. We need a prize. We need a prize after we get done. We need a reward, don't we? Yeah. But then you also have society telling you, besides that's your friend, you know, that alcohol fixes everything for you. You're stressed. Have a wine. Yeah. You know. You want to relax, have a beer, you're feeling nervous, so they start hearing that and they feed their anxiety with an anxiety-inducing legal drug without understanding it magnifies all their emotional, mental problems they already have, but it's legal. Mm-hmm. And So it's not easy to find your people when you take everything that you've learned as an adult, um, drinking beer on the golf course, drinking beer with your neighbor or whatever. And you've got to go out there and figure out how to to find your people without that. But that's the kind of step that um, solidif- can potentially solidify the connection, can solidify the relationship, right? When you see that you are no longer the only outlet that this person has for emotional connection, that they're, they're out there finding it on their own. Well, and to me, that's where a recovery group is so important because those are other people who are looking to stay sober. So at a minimum, they're your initial starter friend group, you know, or or could be. Um, but I think it's I think there's also the surprising thing, like when I was looking at the data, because of course our spouses were trying to convince us that their level of drinking was completely normal, mm-hmm. which of course it's not. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I grew up in a household where alcohol was normalized. It was not abused, but it definitely was normalized. And so I didn't necessarily think it was particularly weird or unusual to have alcohol around or do some of those things like golf. But when you start to look at the data, a third of adult Americans don't drink at all. Another third of Amer- adult Americans drink less than one drink a week, which in my mind, I would call them not a drinker, 
which means two-thirds of American adults do not drink or barely drink. So this whole, like, what they drink is normal is really, really distorted. If you drink, if you drink two drinks, like two glasses of wine with dinner every night, you are in the top 20% of drinkers. Our, our alcoholic loved ones are in the top 10%. They're drinking 70 drinks a week. Mm -hmm. 70 drinks. So when you look at how skewed that is, but that's the progressive nature of the disease. And that's the piece that I think if you gave more people the data, it, certainly I would have been like, holy, holy moly. You know, I would have certainly recognized that his, his drinking was in serious, in a serious place much sooner than I did. But, but would he recognize that? Like, if you had shared the data, data with him... Not would, logical. Exactly. I, mean, I, I do think he's known for a good 10 years he had an issue. Because any time I would ask him to scale back, he would do so immediately. He just couldn't keep it that way. Right. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I finally said, you know, two or three years ago, you have to stop. Like, you look terrible. Something is wrong. He did the next day, and it lasted two months. And that's the part of I didn't understand the progressive nature of, of the disease to understand that he had crossed over to the part where, you know, he was now dependent and it was in a, in a, a different stage. I just didn't understand that part until he ended up in the hospital. And to piggyback on what you said about them trying to convince us all that their level of drinking is normal, I can look at my situation and I can fully understand why my husband feels that way because most of the people he surrounds himself with are such heavy drinkers. So to him, he's looking at me going, no, you're the one that has an issue with it because look at all of these other people. Right, but, they if, you the data, as as me. but if you give them the data, you realize, no, you're in the top 10%. <laughs> but they don't, I don't know that they care. Yeah. Yeah. They just or, don't. It's not tangible for them. Well, also, once we've crossed that <laughs> invisible line, I don't know that whether we care or not, there's anything we can do about it. Um, but but the, but you're right. The, the data is a, a big part of what is ignored. Nikki, you used the word earlier uh, about how it's demeaning. How the I think we were talking specifically about how the recovery community is in in some ways demeaning to the spouses, to the loved ones of alcoholics. I want to I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, how many of you have had the experience where? when the truth begins to get out a little bit and your, your close friends, your close family, your neighbors maybe start to know what's going on, um, you've got people in your circle that want to constantly ask, how is your husband doing? But they never ask how you're doing. Mm -hmm. Has oh, anyone yeah, experienced that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so what, how, describe how it feels when you find your tribe. What has this fellowship meant to you? And I'm not trying to turn this into an infomercial for... Echoes of recovery. I don't care. Maybe you're. Yeah. What's that? No, I will make it. Yeah. I will make it a selling point because you guys are also invaluable to me. Like, I this was my survival group. I don't know how I would have gotten through it without all of you. I would agree with that. I think I was I was lost in knowing that I wasn't finding something I could relate to and that was supportive to me, and kind of about to give up. Honestly, like, okay, I guess I am doing this alone. I guess there really aren't resources. You know, insurance will pay for my partner to go to rehab, but there's no rehab 
for the trauma and the, the deregulated nervous system and the hypervigilance and all these weird adaptations that had come in. But then to find a group of people to share the story with and to not be judged, but also to be able to hear people at different stages of their, their own healing, you know, dealing with things that either I haven't yet or I did already, and just knowing that it's, um, it is a journey. And I think that's the other, one of the big takeaways I've had from these interactions is, is, is some comfort in knowing that it's a journey and that I don't have it figured out and it's not over with yet or all the things that um, were part of the early expectation. Is that it's, it's an ongoing journey that has a lot of texture to it. And there's not one singular path. There's not a right there's way. Right. You know, some people, you know, will, can make it work. They can continue and make it work. Some people have to end things, but it, no, there's no right path. Right. And there's no pressure to to end your marriage, your relationship. This, this and also group, no pressure this to stay. It just does yeah. nothing but provide strength in whichever whatever path you're going down um, and, and helps you go down each one of those. And we're at all ages um, and all lifestyles. Like, we're at different points, all of us. And, like, we all sat here all weekend on this retreat and, like, we didn't stop talking the whole time because we're all, like, this is, like, our family. Like, that's why I push so much for the retreat because these are my people that live all over the United States and even outside of the United States and... You know, I wanted to meet the people. I see the faces on Zoom every week. I mean, I forget. I think um, you said, you mentioned that we spend eight hours a month with these people. Mm-hmm. You know, for the, for me, it's been the last two years. That's a lot of time invested in mm-hmm. people on Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> so these are friendships, too. That's what I was going to say. Do you yeah. feel like it transcends this, this yeah, disease? Yeah, because I know that Leah likes to go to Target and likes Chuck. <laughs> genuine friendships because our secrets are out there yes yeah so we don't have to impress anybody in this room and And nobody vulnerable with each other and it's not where you have to hide in shame so bringing that vulnerability and your story into light so you're not keeping it in the dark and just being able to show up however i felt that week and it being completely different than the week before and i'm really fucking mad yeah. then I'm mad that week and the next day I'm like super empowered and the next day I'm falling apart like I yeah, needed a safe place to, to do all that and not look crazy yeah or have a bunch of rules that restricted us from doing all of that in yes. a group or meeting it's all about not feeling pressured I, there's so many times uh, you know like I'll just go on the Facebook group and I'm feeling all fired up like I've made up my mind and, mm-hmm. and I'm done now and this is it <laughs> and you know so many of you chime in and you're like oh okay you know good for you or we're here or whatever and then it, inevitably somebody's always like and that might change tomorrow and that's mm-hmm. okay yeah. and oh. you're always right yeah. mm-hmm. it's just <laughs> the support and love that I've gotten here is something I can never replace or express enough gratitude for I mean you've all saved me I really have. I was just gonna say, same. Like from (laughs) (laughs) also from the perspective of I before I found this group, found um, one really close friend 
through Al-Anon who I, I don't go to Al-Anon meetings anymore, but she's a really, really close friend. And then another really, really close friend through my husband's rehab. And my husband doesn't go to rehab anymore, but she's still my really, really close friend. And those are just two really, really good friends that know my whole entire story. I don't have to be secretive with them. And they just are just really good friends. And they, I don't, it's the same as I feel like with you guys, that I can just be myself and I can just talk to them about whatever. And I just, you know, just feel comfortable with them. And and so I, any kind of people that you feel comfortable with and that you feel like you can have that community with, it's like super important to have that. And you know, that is like, you, you cannot do this in isolation. Like well, you can't do it. I feel like for many years, I had a wall up, you know, right. against Matt, but also the world. Cause I was afraid that if that exterior broke, if I ever let any of that secret out of what's really going on behind my home as we're standing on the playground together watching our kids after school and they're talking about what they're going to do for the weekend, ski or vacations, I was like, if any of my secrets spill out, I'm going to be looked at like, why are you staying with them so judged and kind of excommunicated in this like great little like neighborhood school like, and that people would look down on us, you know, and so... Once we started this group and we had our first few um, attend, I don't know, like attendees, members, members people, that's a good word. Yeah. Family. I <laughs> had like an immediate bond because there was true vulnerability well, that I never found to. anywhere. And even with my own mother and sister who had experienced alcoholic marriages, I could never be as vulnerable with them as I am with you. Do all. do others of you feel that way that you can mm-hmm. be more honest yeah. here than with maybe family? Actually, you don't have to sugarcoat anything here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I it's, think this is the only place. Yes. I'm yeah. happy but it also yeah. changed it it made me be more vulnerable with my family. Mm-hmm. I have that perspective. Because I don't know that I would have said so much to my family before having the um not inspiration, but just like just that fire under your ass to get it out there. Gives you, you know? the rehearsal like, space. Like I yeah. can practice yeah. to you and then get out and you know. work it out. Yeah. yeah. Well, and there's not there's no judgment. Like I mean, like Jane said, you can come one day and be as angry and as mad and fuck all of this. We're done. I'm out. I'm packing my stuff. I'm leaving. And then the next week. You guys are planning a vacation together, you know, and there's not one of you that is going to be like, well, Rachel, do you really think that's a great idea? There's not. But I can tell you in my family, there is. Because that is alcohol. That is life with alcohol. Well, I can't do that with them. You guys have seen each other before coffee in the morning now? You have, you have seen each other after hiking in the, the hot, dry in the sun. Yeah. And, Good nature. And there is no judgment. You're right. I, I, think it's, I, I think it's amazing. One of the things I'm, I'm curious about, we talked about the fact that we have different ages represented. We have people at this table who have kids. We have people who do not have kids. We have people who are dog people. We have people who are cat people. We have people who are duck people. And I said people plural, and I meant it. There are plural duck people. Which is 
amazing. And this is just a small sampling of what, you know. But we're all in the same, like, nurturing, like, yes. that's what part of our question yeah. at the beginning of our retreat. We all answered what kind of job we wanted to be, what kind of career we wanted, and we all had very similar answers. You're nurturing, but, but there's so many differences, and I'm curious, one of the things that, Pam, you first brought this into the conversation. I want to make sure that, that listeners aren't missing this. Not only do you have those different tangible backgrounds that we just talked about, your relationship statuses are very, very different. There are people with uh, long with spouses with long-term sobriety sitting at this table. There are people um, with spouses that are trying to decide whether or not sobriety is the right thing. Maybe they're struggling with rehab, relapse. We have people at this table whose drinker is actively drinking and showing no signs of ever stopping. We have people who have parted company from their alcoholic, um, and and the relationship is gone. When you guys are talking to each other, is any of that tangible in your head? No. Tell me, what, tell me why you're shaking your head now. I think it's I think it's fascinating how bonded you are and that and that that's it doesn't not part matter of it. to us. Why it's just it because it we it's still the same. We've all been through it at some level. I mean, my husband's almost three years sober, so I went through it, and now I know what she's going through. So it's not like a, in the back of my head. Oh, I know her husband's doing. It's because we can all still relate. Right. And because all of us ask that question: Do right. I stay? Do I go? When yeah. do I leave? Do I come back? Right. We've all asked that question, and more than once. Yeah, we've all thought about it. We've all right. I mean, whether we're with our husband or we're not, or whether they're in recovery or sober, drinking, not drinking, whatever their status is, we've all considered all the options at one point or another. We've all thought through all the options. We all said the same things that Sherry said. Right. Yeah, for sure. And that's what's her best. And I would like to add the other reason we don't is because this is about us. Right. Right. And about knowing us. us. Not as our, not as a spouse of an alcoholic. Yeah. But who are you? I mean, I found my career mentor here. (laughs) 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 So, you know... It was a, because we spend two hours a week talking about our alcoholic relationship. And there's been times I was like, can we just have a fun week? Yeah. But then I think, okay, well, but we really are trying to recover ourselves. So this was the chance to have fun. Well, we were talking about how um, Pam is the same sign as my husband. And... and um. She's the same sign, yeah. As, yeah. As you're the same sign as my yes, husband. Yeah, I'm the same sign as, as your husband. Yeah, and so like <laughs> zodiac. That's sign. like an interesting thing. But yeah. that's like as much as we talked about our spouses this weekend. We've just been talking about ourselves. A lot, a lot of them have similar jobs. Yeah, but we're not here to talk about them all the time. That's right. not. I have not once heard on this weekend somebody say, "Oh, come on over here, honey." I've been doing this for three years, and you're just getting started. Let me tell you how this is going to go. The level of respect that I've seen you guys show each other is really amazing. And likewise, for the people with different relationship statuses and different status drinking statuses of your spouses, is the mut- where does the mutual respect come from? People don't treat each other this way in the big bad world. <laughs> That's why. Well, because people they don't should. treat each other this way, and they should. Right. They should. 
It's just as simple as that. Yes. At the same time, though, I will say part of the reason why I joined Echoes is I was really confused and lost, and I felt like I needed that roadmap. I had no idea what I was dealing with. I was, I felt like I was drowning, and I needed people like some of the women at this table who are a year, two, three, four years ahead of me just to give me some sense of what the heck am I dealing with because he was so different when he came home. Well, um, even with that, it's you don't just have to learn from the people who are he- ahead of you in the journey. I mean, my husband has been sober over three years, but I still learn a lot of things from people who who their spouses have a, haven't even started, you know, the... Um, right. Yeah. And I get a lot of just hope, you know, yeah. regardless of whether my spouse fixes his issue, this is a this is a, just a huge issue in society, and yeah. I just think that the, the hope that you get from learning what we're all learning and walking through and seeing some success, because there is success in this room, you know, um, we got to have that. We have kids that, you know, <laughs> have, have alcoholic fathers, and um, the story's not over. Right. Right. You know. And I think your point that you bring up is a really important one about the, the larger cultural story, and that might be one of the unifying things, even though all of our situations can be very different. Is that there's like the, the cultural deification of, of alcohol and drinking and, and partying and escaping, and then there's the demonization of those that are, are then riddled with addiction and challenged by it, and those who are trying to manage their own experience of being, you know, loving that person, whether that's a, a spouse or a brother or a, a child or a friend, you know, this is a this is a big, huge conversation. And I think that we've talked a lot in this call about judgment and about feeling vulnerable. And I think the reason those are even issues is because we, we live larger culturally in a situation where those things, this is not getting dealt with. And so then there's the collateral damage of the addicts and those that love the addicts who then have to be the ones that deal with it. You know, and in a way, it's like if it's ever going to be changed on a larger paradigm, it's going to be the people that are in the trenches looking for the hope, trying to find the answers, trying to find the solutions, you know, seeing the successes and failures and, and feeling all the emotions that are going to say, hey, we've got to have a different way of being. You know, I think that's good that you brought that up. And whether you can change it for the world, and I hope you can, and I believe that there's enough strength and power and intelligence in this room that you really can have a big impact. I really, really believe that. One thing's for sure, whether that happens or not, you can change it in each other's lives and help um, move the ball forward for yourselves. Jana, a minute ago, you said the word success. I think, I know for Sherry and I, when we first started this work, whether it's the podcast or Echoes or the, the idea, certainly um, pretty high on our list of priorities was let's see if, if, if by getting to know people, sharing what we know, them sharing with each other, we can save some marriages. I don't even think that's on our list anymore. And I think that's important because Success doesn't mean the marriage survived. Success means each individual gets better, right? Well, you survive. Yeah. Well, but thrive too, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, We don't want to just survive. And you you have a support system. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'll never forget one of my first calls, Jane. Over the Zoom, she's like, Rachel, you need to be nice to yourself. 
Like, be kind. And that's something that we teach, right? It's something we see in the world. But nobody stops and stops you and says, hey, hey, here's a here's an, a slap across the face over the internet. Stop it. You need to be nice to yourself. Why? Why, does, why don't we tell each other that? Like, we all do it in our circles at home. Why don't we tell each other to be nice, to be kinder, you know, just to ourselves? Forget the people around you, but to yourself. Yeah. You know, that... Yeah, self-care isn't taking a bubble bath. No. (laughs) When we talk about, not solutions, but success, pardon me, when we talk about success and we talk about getting healthy as individuals, have you gotten far enough along that you set individual goals for yourself? You You can't help but have the relationship in the back of your mind, whether you're still married and working on it or that person is not you know, your spouse any longer, you, the relationship's going to gnaw at you forever, right? But do are you able to focus and say, this is what I want for myself? Can can anyone take a... Dusty, can you take a stab at that? I remember wanting peace, really above anything else. Um the point at which I decided to join Echoes, well, once I found Echoes, I pretty much immediately joined. Um, I just needed a break from the chaos, from trying to lasso that tornado. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I know in our writings we've we've painted very like tangible visuals of what does that life look like. Um, I really feel like I had tried everything before joining this group. I had <clears throat> I had begged and pleaded um, for him to stop drinking. I had given the ultimatums. I had tried saying, screw it, I'll just drink with you, and couldn't stand the way that it made me feel. I had left it alone and pretended it didn't exist. I had given materials to read. I had sent podcasts. I had learned stuff myself and tried to communicate it. It, You name it, I tried it. And I I used to think, I used to think that what I wanted, what, I mean, of course I wanted for my marriage to succeed. I wanted David to get sober. I wanted peace for myself and our kids. I had this idyllic picture and I was willing to do anything to get there. Um, Now that I know that it doesn't matter what I did or didn't do, I still have that same hope for my future. I still want the peace. I still want happy kids. I still want to be happy. Um, you know, David decided not to be a part of that in his own way. (laughs) One of the things you said, Dusty, to me when we were talking about, you know, goals, what do you want to get out of this weekend? You, you shared that you wanted to, I don't know if you said find yourself, find strength, find peace. 
outside of the relationship, outside yeah. of the the context of a relationship. It's so really more about who I am outside re- of the context of that relationship. You know, I know we've all felt like we're just we're labeled as the wife of the alcoholic. That's who we are. That's our identity. And now, like I'm the widow of an alcoholic. Nothing has changed for me. I still, I sit here and I listen to you guys talk about what you're trying, what you've tried, what you're hoping for. And I remember being in every single place. I mean, we all have already established that. We all tell our own version of the same story. And I, I, there is part of me that still wants to scream every time somebody says something like that because I did it all. I stayed. I left for a while. I came back. I, I did it all, everything I knew how to do, and it didn't save his life. It did not change the outcome at the end of the day. I never, ever, ever want anybody to have to feel like that. And uh, so whenever we, th- you know, talk about, like, why did we come to Echoes? What have we found here? We found a friggin' lifeboat. Yeah. Like, I mean, Leah said it, we can't do this in isolation. Our, our partner in their addiction is drowning, and they are doing their damnedest to bring us down with them. And you have a choice. You either drown or you reach for that lifeboat and ask to be pulled into it. And then... I mean, in my, <clears throat> in my uh, experience, and I'm sure in everybody else's, you're begging them to stick their arm out to. Begging them. You know, yeah, fight for us, fight for the marriage, fight for me, but fight for yourself. <laughs> like. Well, and, and that's exactly what, you, what you're doing here. You, you as you've shared, Dusty, you you've experienced a lot of the same things that the people around this table have. You have experienced something that no one around this table has. Mm-hmm. And and you came here to find yourself and find strength. And I just want to highlight for our listeners that yesterday you climbed a 14,000 foot peak. <laughs> you burned the shit out of it. <laughs> I mean, you are undisputedly one of the strongest people at this table, and uh, I know you get a lot out of this group, but you give way more than you get, and um, we're just so blessed to have you here. And I think this is a place where, out in the world, you are viewed as a widow. You're labeled as a widow, and in here, here. not at all. Right. You're going to be Dr. Dusty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, nobody, not a single person in this group has ever made me feel like I don't belong here anymore because I'm no longer married to an addict. Like, and I cannot tell you, like, I've, I've struggled with it myself, feeling like maybe I don't belong there anymore, you know, because I, I can't, I don't know, I don't know what I'm thinking when I tell myself this, but as I say it out loud, I hear how ridiculous it actually sounds, but nobody's ever made me feel like a widow. Or like anybody but me. <laughs> you guys see me, and I see all of you, and I love it. I love everybody. 
And we laugh ridiculously a lot. Yeah, we do. As someone whose spouse is still actively drinking, I can say with absolute confidence that I need you. Yeah. Yeah. I need to hear your story. You belong here. I I need to hear all of this. I guess I just wish that after all of my experience, I could bring something to the table and say, here's the secret. Here's what you gotta do. I want that so desperately because I don't ever, I don't want to see anybody go through what I've been through. And I was just the first, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you were just the first. Yeah, and I know that it's going to continue. Like, I mean, as long as they're drinking, it's not a question of if, but when. When and how, <laughs> you know. And, yeah, oh. But in a way, that's exactly what you're doing. It's not that, that's exactly what you're all doing. It's not the Disney fairy tale. It's not the... The prince and the princess run off together into the sunset, but you're changing the narrative. You're changing the definition of success. The definition of success. Yeah, the movie's (laughs) lie. The definition of success is your strength and your healing and your individual growth. Come what may, because there's more shit to come, right? For all of us, no matter what our marital situation or alcohol situation is. I think outside of, of here, we have to achieve and succeed and carry and reach so much that this is just a place where success is just to be. Mm. Mm. Just show up, be wherever you're at, and know that that is what you're supposed to do. That That's a great, I mean, tremendous message for, I know people that will listen to this podcast that are struggling and don't know where to go and don't know what the next step is. I don't want to put you all on the spot, but does anyone else have any other kind of parting words of advice. Remember where you were when you just, maybe you just listened to episode nine for the first time and you were like, holy shit. Take a risk. Reach out. Reach out somewhere. Try everything. You yeah. Do it for you. We are real. You don't We're have real to, people. you don't have to make a life-changing decision today or right now. You, you know, someone said, Today you can be really mad and be packing your bags and leaving, and tomorrow you can change your mind. Like, it, it's, I hate to use this, but it is one day at a time. Like, it really is. Like, we, we, we consider every option. I, I feel like I consider every option every day, every minute I change my mind, and you just, I don't know. You don't have to make any life-changing decisions. And nobody should tell you what your future looks like but you. Right. Not a therapist, not Not your mom. And it's okay to be human because humans are going to make mistakes. We're going to experiment. We're going to learn. We're going to do things differently. We're going to stumble. We're going to rise up. And um, there's no perfect path. There's no magic wand. And so allowing the humanness of of us to be part of this, I think, is... um, Boy, I wish I had heard that a long time ago. Well, and I think related to that is regardless of where your loved one is on their own journey, whether they're still on active addiction or whether they're in relapse or whether they're in recovery, your own healing journey is your own healing journey. And I think one of the starting points is recognizing how much of your brain matter is consumed every day with them. And if you can begin to pay attention to how much you are consumed by that and begin to pull that back, 
where you can be thinking about your own needs and if they aren't being met by your spouse right now, where can you begin to get some of those needs met? It, like your journey is your journey. And so is their journey is their journey. That's right. Yeah. And hopefully at some point in time you can get back together. If not, you it's be not, okay it's, with both. Right. I love the fact that so many of you, when, when giving kind of your parting thoughts, you looked right at the microphone as though you were talking to the person <laughs> on the other end of it. But it's that personal to you. You've been on the other end of this microphone. Yeah. And that's really, it's really a beautiful thing. The sun is setting over the Rocky Mountains right over <laughs> my back shoulder here, and there's a patio waiting for you. Um, I, I'm just, I have no doubt there'll be more tears, but now it's time for more laughter. And before we go, this is episode 150, which, that's a lot. That's a lot. But I'll tell you what, we would have ended around episode 14 if it wasn't for all of you. I know, I know that you've gotten stuff out of this, but uh, you are also the driving force, whether you're here with us in this rare opportunity to, to speak to, to the listeners or you're here as motivation for um, especially Sherry to keep going. I just don't want anybody to be stuck in the mire the way I was for so long so Angela is like one of our newer members who's made such such great strides by being in a community and having that support and knowing that her needs are needing to be met yeah she planned to come here in four days yeah (laughs) she she heard about it she knew there was a space open and, and made it happen and I just I don't think I could have ever been in your early, you know, situation and made any of those decisions without having a group like this. So I'm just glad that we're making hope. You're helping people. Yeah, definitely. Because now any one of us could say, hey, I need help, and a dozen plus people would show up at our door, (laughs) some from halfway across the country. Yeah, sometimes we could be in all black, you know. <laughs> <laughs> With our hummingbird tattoos. Quietly in the night. Yeah. 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 All right, let's carry these inside jokes out on the outside. <laughs> Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.